0: In this episode of the podcast, I talked to Rishi Ganti of Orthogon Partners, which invests in untraded assets. When I met Rishi about seven years ago, I was reeled in when he told me about how graduates of the best schools in the country annually flock to Wall Street to work in organized markets, despite everything they learned in Economics 101. Here's what I wrote in an article that was published in I.I. in 2020. The invisible hand is working to tell people in finance that they should go do something else. Finance's law of physics is learned in Econ 101. It's the theory of competition. Competition eliminates profits, and perfect competition eliminates profits perfectly. Ganti says people entering finance conveniently forget it the minute they step into their first job at Goldman or Blackstone. Whether it's securities traded on a screen or private equity deals being paraded around, the invisible hand is squeezing out alpha on purpose. Gonti, who gets a little starry-eyed about finance, says there's one time in the life cycle of an asset, it's discovery when something beautiful happens in markets. Then he shifts to a sitcom from the 1960s to make his point. If you are the Beverly Hillbillies and you shoot the ground and out comes a bubbling crude, that family is going to Beverly Hills because they created something out of nothing. It was ultimately a protean creative act. They introduced oil into the world where it wasn't. You can make art, you can discover a drug or a cure. That is the major source of value creation. That is new, says Ganti. So listen as I talk to a man who gets starry-eyed about finance and also watched the Beverly Hillbillies. Well, so Rishi, I looked back in my email. We met back in the spring of 2018, uh, which doesn't sound that long ago, but a global pandemic in five years, oh my God.
1: It's an age ago, pre-pandemic, is even hard to imagine.
0: Yeah, it really is. And you reached out, I believe, after reading a few things that were kind of interesting for you. You know, Is Alpha Dead, which has become like this weird Julie Siegel classic. Um, I hope I write something uh, that's as well known uh, soon. But you know, that talked about beating the market being so hard, if not impossible, right? And I don't know if you were really so interested in that idea, but, like, maybe a journalist who was thinking about different things. So we met, we had all these conversations, and, you know, I was in from the start with you. I mean, your, your ideas are just so compelling, like, laid out, um, you know, Thanks. and challenging the core premise, right, of this industry. So we had many conversations, and then I finally published an article, late 2020, actually, kind of that that grew out of our back and forth, which um, I did like the headline, I don't know if you did, but how mo- modern finance is ruining the world. So I'm not gonna try and sum up any of your thinking, that's what we're gonna talk about. But you founded Orthogon Partners, which invest completely outside markets. So to really understand you know, your thinking, your what you're challenging, I want you to kind of go back in time and um, you know, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Well, I went to graduate school in economics and studied law as well. And during that time, not to date myself, if you studied finance and you were writing papers in finance, look, attacking the efficient markets hypothesis was the name of the game. We knew there were holes in it, things that were hard to understand. Markets, are, of course, at that time were, and all the more so currently, are very efficient, right? But you could find little things, little mistakes. All of us as graduate students were investing in those those anomalies, what we called them. And the classic one was IPO underpricing. And so the poor graduate student is the romantic image of getting a PhD. But we were making really good money investing in anomalies and – one of them being IPOs that came out, which at that era was you know, were pretty frequent. But when I left graduate school, I thought, what am I doing with my life? That's one of the dangers of graduate school. You spend a lot of time staring at sunsets, right, as well as math- <laughs> mathematics. And I was trained in stochastic mathematics, time series analysis, and I thought, making markets a hair more efficient wasn't what I wanted to do, it wasn't the contribution I wanted to make to society or the meaning I wanted to have for my life. And so when I, when I went into the world, I thought, what is there outside of markets what can we surface into markets? And that wasn't an easy question to answer at all. And we lionized a lot of the groups that, that do things like that, and we'll, we'll talk about them. But the vast organization of Wall Street or the industry was really about markets and, and just trying to shave off a little bit more. Right. That began the saga of what was would be my career for
0: me. Right, right. Where did you start really investing you know, outside markets? Where did some of those ideas come from, like, pragmatically?
1: So I was very fortunate to begin my career essentially at J.P. Morgan in what was essentially investing for the holding company there. And J.P. Morgan's a sprawling organization, uh, then merged with Chase, became even bigger, and had a lot of issues. And there would be a an asset that would have a regulatory issues or, some, or something with special tax treatment or something. And we would work on those assets and the, the prices for those assets really didn't necessarily reflect what would be called a market price because mm-hmm. the transaction was outside of a market. If a regulator said, hey, we don't want you to have that asset or if there's something that could optimize a tax position, you know, the dynamics are, are, are different and Moving into that area very, very slowly as I then worked for HBK, very small book doing that, made a little bit of money there, and then really becoming the first full-time investor in proprietary assets, private assets, excuse me, at Two Sigma Investments. It just takes a lot of time. It's not, by definition, it's just not any kind of well-worn path to do that.
0: Right. You know, let me back you up a little bit. Outside markets, like what is... What does that mean?
1: So markets are designed to bring buyers and sellers together. And we can think of a lot of assets where buyers and sellers meet. Stocks, bonds, currencies. But even in everyday life, if somebody puts an apartment or a house for sale, you might you might be the only seller of that house, for example, but there'll be lots of buyers. And that th- those are markets. Now, to use a simple example, let's talk about Airbnb.
0: Okay.
1: Okay? So... Airbnb really surfaced an asset. They said, hey, people are often not in their homes. If we could convince people to let a total stranger in their home to rent it, right, if there's enough money there, then we could unlock something. There was no market, and I'm putting air quotes with my hands here, for the ability to stay in your apartment, in your home. But it clearly was an asset. You clearly could could rent it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'd take a heck of a lot of work from them to do it. And now people can rent your car or your boat. You know, There's versions of Airbnb all, all over the place. And so that's an example of surfacing an asset into a market. Mm-hmm. Creative types won't be surprised by this at all. If somebody makes a new song or a piece of art, well, that's just something that, that wasn't there before. Materials came together, and it's a protean creative act. In finance, that's, that's, that's rarer in some sense. There is a marriage of the ideas in venture capital. So in venture capital, you bring together people who are trying to start stuff from scratch that wasn't mm-hmm. there before in the best sense of venture capital and then capital, money, meets that idea. But that's actually in, in most areas of finance, the exception rather than the rule. And so there's a lot more that can that can be, be done there.
0: I mean, you said it so well that in art, right, like creation is just kind of obvious. You're creating something on, out of nothing. In finance, it's harder to imagine, except for maybe Silicon Valley. But there are points of discovery, right? Like in finance. Like talk about that a little bit. I love your story about the Beverly Hillbillies, partly because you know I remember watching that show. Mm-hmm. You know, like talk about that because it, once that oil is discovered, once that piece of artwork exists then those artworks are going from one pair of hands to another, right? So talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So let's talk about the sheer creation of value and the Beverly Billies analogy, and that, that itself people may not be able to relate to, but discover oil. Now, if the oil wasn't there before, of course it was under the ground, but it wasn't usable. If it wasn't there before and then it comes out, suddenly there's an asset. There's something with value that wasn't there before. It's worth something a lot. But now let's say, instead, the oil has traveled and it's being traded. Barrels of crude are being being traded and priced. It's still the same item. It's not increasing value or decreasing value per se. It's it's trading hands at at different prices. So nothing new is being introduced into the world. There's just activity around how much is it worth. Uh And so those are two largely fundamentally different activities. Now, the enormous amount of value is in bringing the asset out. Mm -hmm. When you trade it, and this is very classic, when you trade it, you're hoping for the other side to say make a mistake, to sell at a price that's too low or buy at a price that's too high. That almost assuredly is just a fraction of the value of the asset itself. If the oil is worth $100, for example, you may try to get it for $99.90, and you might make. So the $0.10 of profit to you, arguably, is there as a trader, but it's just a fraction of what the oil itself was was worth. So the main value that, that came into the world was when the asset was surfaced.
0: Okay. So trading, you know, for a penny here, a penny there. I mean, obviously, you know, Renaissance, the famous hedge fund, does quite well with that. I mean, there's huge asset managers, you know, that trade stocks, bonds, private equity, private credit, all of that stuff. Big pension funds invest in that; they make money. So why is it bad? I mean, or what, what's not working about that about that system? First of all, well, there's nothing
1: bad about trading. Trading is an absolutely necessary part of the world. Markets are maybe one of the greatest institutions the world has ever created. Right along, you know, there with democracy. Let's say.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: I would simply say that. There really isn't anything per se wrong with it. If you're pricing an asset accurately is critically important to the allocation of resources in a society. We have Uh things in society that are incredibly misallocated every time you think about pollution or people who study certain fields but they don't work in 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 areas that might produce the most for society or that there's even hunger you know world hunger this is just misallocation of resources is all over the place and pricing assets accurately is one huge step along with distribution in, in solving a lot of these a lot of these problems so mm-hmm. it's great there are two issues one is more social one is more private but even the private issue is is also social one social issue is that there's a lot of allocation of resources to pricing a- assets ever more accurately, mm-hmm. and the second issue is you know microwave tower arrays or people with extraordinary minds who who you know work on work on this issue of, of trading versus say another issue that one would lament could be better for us.
0: Lots of. Brain power out there that right. might be misallocated.
1: That's, that's one. And I, I don't want to say it's a choice. It's a choice. And, yeah. and, and these are smart people and doing their things. The second part is whether or not investing in these activities is producing the level of, of returns that investors really should be getting, which is a topic that you and I talk about
0: mm-hmm.
1: a lot. So uh, money is being made. And then we have to just see you know to whom it goes. Does it go to the pension fund? Does it go to the trader? But definitely- markets are a wonderful institution, trading has to happen, and how an investor invests, invests across a spectrum of activities from the very protean, you know, sheer creation of assets, all the way to, you know, hyper-fast liquid trading of assets that are, are well understood.
0: Right. But you didn't want to play in those, in those markets, right? You wanted to do something else where in some ways the competition was less, Like in some ways, perhaps easier to find good investments, although in other ways, very, very difficult because you have to find them and and create them to a certain extent. So so just talk about why you didn't want to play in that arena.
1: Let's talk about the situation that all, all of us face, right? And this, you and I talk about a ton, Microeconomics 101 that competition eliminates profits and perfect competition eliminates profits perfectly, right? And very few things are as competitive as the liquid financial markets. So arguably when you see a price, especially if it's one on the screen, there are many, many actors, hundreds, thousands of actors pricing that asset. Some of those actors are not even human, right? They could be algorithms or things, or things like that. Right. It's very hard to make the argument that the price is wrong. If you can, if you can do it consistently, you mentioned Renaissance. Uh, I work for a firm called Two Sigma. If you can do it consistently, it's, it's great. It can, be, can make uh, fabulous wealth across a lot of volume. As you said, you might grab a penny or a fraction of a penny, really, here or there. It depends on the asset, of course. But across many, a ton of volume, it can, it can work. And so I think the second part of it is, is as a person participating in that, in, in that system, the system works very well. Mm-hmm. It continues to work well, you know, better all the time. Maybe in some sense it works it works too well people are laying cable you know, across an ocean to to do something just to capture a signal for a fraction of a second, and trade ahead of a fraction of a second before someone else. Right. But it works very, very well. But let's go back to that example of, of oil. If, if bringing oil out of the ground takes it from a value of zero because nobody knows where it is to 100, and the second activity you know, kind of trades around the edge of that 100 price, it seemed... More fun for me, more meaningful for me mm. to be involved in that in that lift. And I, I want to say involved, because there's no one person who who does anything. This is you know it's it's I'm glad you're talking to me, but and you mentioned me as a founder, but even Orthogon was founded by many many people. Many people participate in the hands in any asset that we're able to provide that is unconventional. There are all kinds of actions involved. There's no single Human, that that's just a, that's just a myth, and mm. you know we're we're organized that way. And so, if you can do it, and the, you mentioned this too, it's great because instead of taking a you know very liquid scenario and trying to see ooh is that a penny over or is that a penny under the the price, mm. instead you you see something that you can you can perhaps lift out uh, into the world. And say, well, we we know it's it's worth more. And then you you also alluded to the difficulty. It's not a well trodden path. I mean, one mm-hmm. thing is, if you want to trade stocks, you can do it at home. You don't have to be a professional. You know, if you have flip open your computer or your cell phone, if you, <laughs> if you, you know, a few a few taps, and you're suddenly at at work. It's liquid for a reason. I mean, the world has made it easy to do, and it's a miracle, right? What is what is stock? Stock is fractional legal ownership of a company. Say. Mm-hmm. And we can trade fractional legal ownership of a company, microsecond to microsecond, basically. Right. That's that's a stupendous achievement of society. But it's also great for society to, when we think of society, to make discoveries like drug discoveries, mm. create beautiful art, solve a social problem of you know, and and a, a pollution, an area of pollution, and the latter also creates creates value. And so that's all part of doing well by doing by doing good. And from mm. Just it's an individual choice of what career you, you chose to become a journalist, I right. chose to work in finance, and then we all have individual angles we take towards that.
0: yeah, but you wanted to be closer to the discovery process
1: That's right, the That's
0: invention right. right Yeah, so give me some examples of the types of you know investments you know you've made, uh, maybe start with that discovery, right? Like you're not sitting behind a screen to discover. What you want to invest in? I mean, I'm sure that's part of the research process, but it's a little bit more, you know, hands-on.
1: Yes, it, it is, and that's an excruciatingly difficult process to do. An example that I, I like to talk about a lot has to do with charter schools, and again, I don't want to say I discovered it; it was it was something that was was there. But basically, it was fascinating that. At that time, which is now more than 15 years ago, charter schools really had difficulty getting financing, even though they were government, municipal paid entities, right? If you're a charter school, you're really a public school. You're just an alternative public school. You're paid revenues via tax dollars from city, state, local, municipal actors to teach students, right? But they couldn't get financing. And what was even odder was the amount of Money that was flo- potentially flowing here was in the billions of dollars, but typically you would think if there's a municipal obligation, it can get financed, yeah. even if they're very dubious, right? So if somebody, some city wants to build a stadium and it's a terrible idea, well, they can float bonds for it right. or things like that. And so suddenly you took an I- idea that, well, this really should work. We really should be able to provide assistance here. Today it's pretty obvious, okay? Today you know, several billion dollars of financing has been, has been provided. But that's that's an example that that I like to provide. It's mm-hmm. just, in retrospect, it was obvious. And going back to Airbnb as, an, as, a, as a classic venture capital case, and we don't do venture capital at, at Orthicon, but I'm just saying. In retrospect, it was obvious that there was this unlocking that, mm-hmm. that, that, that could be done.
0: Right, Seems, yeah. Seems like, oh my God, extra space. Right? Yeah.
1: And so there are lots of things we're optimizing for, there are many, many unconventional un- by unconventional, what do I mean? Assets out there. Not stocks, bonds, or currencies, mortgages, or but things further further afield. And even those things that are further afield become in a in a flow now. So tax liens, music securitizations, mm-hmm. drug pharma royalties, aircraft engines, shipping containers. And the market is a powerful institution in its or markets mm-hmm. and are constantly looking to to glom on to these assets and price them well. And that's a great thing for society, that's a great thing. You know, what we can do today, if you just click on your cell phone, what you can order today, you know, just would boggle the mind to somebody who was 30 years ago. And that's partly right. advancements in technology married with markets. And so that's what we're, we're constantly on the lookout for.
0: Right. Well, it is really interesting, like you said, so people come to me all the time and they'll say, you know, I do niche investments, you know, music royalties, like you just said, or very complex securitizations or what have you, and they call them esoteric. And I know you've sometimes called them um, what you do, esoteric. But tell me why that just doesn't exactly make sense when people say, I'm in private equity, it's a private company. And so, therefore, it's just less competed. Why is what they're talking about not what you're doing?
1: I think perhaps initially it was like many many years ago, mm. but private equity is, could hardly be considered private as I as I understand it today. I once had a had a roommate who worked in private equity, and the deals he could see and and worked on for the better better course, course for a year were competed over by many many other private equity firms, and they spent a lot of time mm. in an activity which could basically be described as, how much more can we pay for this deal? So a broker or a flow agent will have a deal, a data room, PowerPoint decks, Excel models, and it's not in any incentive of of the broker or the flow agent to hand the deal to only one bidder, right? Right. That would be a great situation for the buyer, right, or for the investor, but rather to round up as many as possible and have them bid against each other. Well, what's that? That's a market. Mm. that's a market.
0: Even with just like 10 players or five players or
1: what have you? In pure theory, it only takes two people, right, holding up that paddle at the art Mm -hmm. auction to bid up an asset to its fair value or even in some empirical studies beyond fair value. That's what's called the winner's curse, right? Mm -hmm. And to win the asset, you have to be the highest bidder. And that's a rough way to make money is to always be the highest bidder for an asset. And so Mm -hmm. the question is not really... Whether the asset is interesting to talk about, it's cool at at some level. The dynamic involved is whether or not there's a lot of competition for the asset. So if somebody's trading a very liquid asset, it's very very hard, potentially a very hard life, uh, because the asset is well priced before mm-hmm. you even look at it. And that asset could be quite common, like stock traded on a on an exchange. And then you have an asset that's you know far more fun to talk about, if you will, like like many. Niche assets are, but if they're bought by a broker or a flow agent, and there are lots of groups seeing it. Then, price is coming very close to its fair value as well, mm. and there'll be additional risks that come with that asset, you know, because it's not liquid. Uh, right. In theory, if, you, if this stock trade goes against you, a microsecond or a couple more later, you can be out of it, right? If you bought some agricultural farm out in a strange, <laughs> you know, land, that yeah. may not be that that easy that easy to exit. So. Right. So, that's, so that's what I mean. So I, I try to shy away from some simplistic descriptions or, or like a, a simple spectrum of, of how conventional or unconventional asset is. But really think about how exposed it is to many market actors, mm. many buyers. And if, if it's less, then, then less. Now, obviously, once once a group comes in to, to work on it, there's value creation. Uh, lots of groups are helped. The, the group receiving the money is helped. You're helped by, by lifting the asset out. But also, it will awaken the market, right? The market will come to look. That's really,
0: yeah, that's really interesting. You awaken the market.
1: That's a very natural part of the process.
0: So talk about that, right? Because in some ways, obviously, you don't want to really awaken the market. You found something. But talk about that process, because I think that's really interesting.
1: Well, let's remember that there's a public-private tension here that has to be resolved. So if you say, you don't want to awaken the market I can see that from a private angle because you say, oh, I want to dominate this. And, yeah. and that's the same reason that a renaissance, for example, is not letting you see their code, OK?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On, on the other hand, uh, bringing a market to bear does two things. One is it provides great assistance. There's no way in the charter school case we could have gotten to the billions of dollars of financings to charter schools, really helping them out. And now actually to schools in general, not just, not just to charters. It's expanded beyond that. Without bringing the market to bear, mm-hmm. right, and the second thing is the, the market itself can be harnessed to help you, OK? So when an asset is new, uh, and that perhaps in some sense, arguendo doesn't happen that often, but when an asset is new, financing is going to be pretty expensive, right? The demand centers, hmm. If you – I mean if you want to buy – we keep going back to – or I keep going back to stocks and stock market. If you want to buy a stock, financing is there for you. It's instant. You know, your brokerage, whoever it is, will let, happy to let you buy it on margin. It's automatic. You don't even have to ask. It'll, okay. it'll Right? It'll be right in the, the key types that you you type into the computer screen.
0: Because the every, lender understands exactly what that everything is, is all about.
1: Everything is automated. Okay. So what if instead you could harness the market so that as the asset becomes better understood, the cost of capital to invest in it lowered? Well, then that's more of a win-win. So yes, there, there is proprietary information. There, there is there's proprietary origination as well and techniques involved. But also it's very difficult and f- foolhardy and maybe even poor from a social standpoint to fight a market that is now saying, oh, right, natural force is going to work on this asset. But instead understand that it's part of what's there and really should be harnessed to, if anything help the asset be surfaced further.
0: Okay, so part of what you're doing, right, you're opening it up, which helps you, but also other competitors will come in mm-hmm. and, and finance these things or put capital against some good ideas. And that's part of what inspires you and motivates you.
1: It would be strange to think that any particular idea could, could last forever. In this sense, right, the asset will continue on, it will blossom, Many groups will work on it, but the hope is that you know you discover something and completely dominate it, and it, it's the forever idea. Then I think that's that's just not how the world works. There maybe are a few examples. I remember Microsoft made its operating system Windows, and it was hard to escape it. Although I can see you know you're on an Apple you know, right. right there, <laughs> but I think it's it's very fulfilling just just to do the first part. The second part is remember there's a lot of work involved. In bringing these unconventional assets from their raw form into something that's really investable, that has legal characteristics around it where you own it, you can produce more of it, you can source more of it, you can Mm. make that sourcing more efficient, you can control risks. And so many groups that they can enter the process at a lot of steps, they don't have to try to replicate your organization's approach to the asset. They can instead Mm -hmm. join you, they can instead provide you capital and in and in some sense that's the job of an allocator an allocator would would say hmm well this is new it seems to work maybe it's good it can diversify us on the other hand we have assets that maybe don't don't produce as well but they're well understood etc i will allocate some to one activity and, and some of my capital to another activity but that's a different question than, oh i will just invent a competitive activity to it right all of those are choices and they all have their pros and cons
0: right And so with like Orthogon, you have end investors, most of them, I think, institutional or family offices. There's a a blend. There's a blend
1: across. Yeah.
0: Okay. So the thing is, though, your firm is different from many other managers, right, that work in, you know, tradable markets. I know it's gotten probably easier to kind of tell your story to investors. How do you explain it, right? Like, you know... Like what are the examples that you give, and what are the kind of the questions that you get about what you're doing?
1: I think examples, you know, we covered a charter school capital, and i can right. I can take them through some more examples in the book and the the main the main part that I try to say is, well, look, let's say there's a there's a government obligation of of some kind, like a bond that you could buy. and the bond in today's high interest rates might you know the government bond might pay eight or nine percent, but through a substantially similar activity or risk profile, we could make a lot more because the government obligation is buried somewhere else. It's not a bond that's traded in an an open market, but rather, as I said in the charter school example, it's an obligation to a charter school, which is relatively unseen, but very helpful if seen.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That being said, the story is not always straightforward to tell because institutions themselves, and you work for institutional investor, institutions themselves have their constraints. Yeah. And so they'll say, well, this is an asset class or a type of asset that we don't have a bucket for, or it's just more of a challenge. These are guardrails that confine them in ways that the story is simple you know, simple enough to understand, but can be very difficult from their end to contemplate. Some groups can only invest in, say, stocks, bonds, and real estate, right, right. or venture capital. And so- they have
0: to explain it to their board, and all that. They understand the principles. I mean, the investors at these at these big institutions or individuals, they understand the concept, but they don't always know exactly where to put it or how to explain it to their constituencies.
1: That's right. What we try to do is we, we say, well, is there a an open bucket, like a, a bucket for diversifying strategies or so like mm. some, some groups have that. You know, there's the phenomenon that's going right now, on right now, which is private credit. And private credit has, has in many ways become a catch-all for more interesting activities.
0: Yeah, it really has, right? Yeah.
1: We respond to it as well by providing investments that are you know highly readable. There are many, many opportunities uh, in the world for investments, including unconventional investments. We're not trying to do the most complicated things in the world, just something that's simpler, less competed,
0: mm-hmm.
1: avoiding that microeconomics 101 lesson and providing something that's directly valuable. And what are people looking for? They're looking for, it's the same simple ideas, higher returns at lower risk and in, incorporating that lower risk are diversifying exposures. And right. so we're just simply trying to provide that in a highly, highly readable way. And that is part of the filter that everyone goes, goes through.
0: Yeah. You know, it's also, it strikes me, too, what you had mentioned to me a while ago now. Last year, I think you used the word weird, weird investments, but I might be making that up, you can tell me, but did pretty well in a tough year for a lot of other markets. Talk about that a little bit and kind of what it means for you.
1: One of the challenges for investors is what really is diversifying? Okay. So investors may define many, many asset classes. There's no standard definition of an asset class, but the market works really hard to prevent you from having a free lunch. (laughs) And what would a free lunch be? Let's say you had asset class A that made a very nice, healthy return, 15 to 20% per year. And you had asset class B that does the same thing. And magically, when asset class A goes down, B tends to go up. And when B goes down, A tends to go up. Then by mixing the two, you can kind of lock in that high return. Well, the market's aware of that, right? The, the, <laughs> the market will then say these assets are underpriced. They're returning too much because you can mix them in this fashion. And so suddenly their prices will go up in order to force their returns to go down or some action the, like that.
0: The market just adjusts.
1: The market adjusts yeah. to to eliminate these free lunches. Mm-hmm although, again, many intelligent agents are all over the place looking to see if they can find them, In the the most classic case is an arbitrage, you know, pure arbitrage. If one activity of a simple force, like raising interest rates, could make assets all across the board fall, then the market in a way is doing its job. It has said, I'm not making diversification, which is something very valuable. I'm not allowing it to be cheap, Mm -hmm. is basically what the market is trying to say. So non-market assets, may not be affected as much by these gravitational forces.
0: Okay, like inflation or other kind of macro events or what have you.
1: Yeah, they'll mm-hmm. be affect they'll be affected less. Now the question that you and I often talk about is whether or not that's that's worth it, okay? So an investor can accept volatility in assets, meaning let's let's say with volatility the volatility people care about going down in general, right? The okay. price the prices of assets going down. If the investor, the family office, the endowment, the pension is long-lived enough. They can ride out these downdrafts and end up in a very, very good place in a simple manner. So there may be investors who thought, "Well, 2022 last year was terrible, but it was part of a longer investment program that works." And in fact, maybe many of the losses are recovered, you know, through the first half or the first three quarters of this year. Right. Right. So pitching an asset that well look, it's safer in, in these scenarios, either one has to provide returns that are commensurate with a long term view with the, with the actor that in theory can ride out volatility, downdrafts, or two is tuned towards an actor that actually has a has a shorter horizon and can't, you know, if you if you're saving up money for some kind of required expenditure, you really shouldn't be gambling with that money in the stock market, right? It might work out for you, it might not, but, you know, it's, it's pretty that's dangerous. Good yeah. And that's a challenge that, you know, unconventional assets or actually just managers in general, given, given their cost structure, have to answer.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you're always trying to, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but like challenging conventional wisdom, like even you just mentioned risk, like risk-adjusted returns, right? Like that's the premier way to really measure things in the investment industry. Can you really know how much risk you're taking?
1: Well, first I want to say, I don't feel like I'm challenging conventional wisdom because okay. I feel when I when I talk about Micro 101 and say, okay, the more competed something is, likely the, the better priced it is and the harder it is to just take a view, like a, a view that it's gonna go up or down and, and make money off of it. Again, there may be other ways of making money up, just off the sheer flow of it or something. And I feel that a lot of the industry, practically speaking, steps over that, what's called the theory of competition. And to me, it's only a theory in the same same way that gravity is a theory. Gravity is actually, people say, the law of gravity. But some people say the theory of gravity because gravity is a theory. But we all know there's gravity, right, for all practical purposes. That clash that's ingrained in you know, people who study economics or people who are in the industry seemingly is is ignored in investments. And that can be okay
0: mm-hmm.
1: If, in fact, the theory is wrong or the investment returns are good. And I think there's a, there's a disconnect because while many people say the investment returns are good, there are studies that say, well, you could actually make a lot more at less risk if you had a simpler program or things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, you asked a second question, which is, can you really know the risk? And in the industry, people bandy about words like alpha. We've generated alpha or this, or we've beaten this benchmark. And actually, unfortunately, it's very hard to know the risk that's being taken. Let me just give a stylized example. Okay. Classic example is somebody says, well, my benchmark is the S&P 500, and our job is to beat it every year, et cetera. The way in classical finance that you, you beat any kind of return per unit risk is to take more risk, right? The reward for bearing risk is return. So a higher risk investment should have higher return otherwise why would you buy it if it were a higher higher risk investment and a lower return that wouldn't make sense and the market would have to act quickly to lower the price of that investment the investment falls so that its return then suddenly looks much larger well let's suppose in a given year or two a group beats the s p 500 but did they take more risk Mm -hmm. will the other shoe drop at some point will we have another 2022 or 2008 Mm -hmm. in 2008 even triple a securities you know went went to zero And so unfortunately, while it's very easy in English to say, well, return should be proportional to risk, it's very easy. You you just inhale air, and it comes right out your mouth. (laughs) From a practical standpoint, it's very hard to know the risks that are being taken to produce returns. And then both, let's say, investor and investment manager are quick to claim that the ex-post result was a result of you know, superior investment acumen or skill, but it, it might have just been the result of taking additional risk mm. that didn't eventuate with a little bit of luck.
0: And you just don't know.
1: You just don't know. To me, that's not a, a very solvable problem. People can put bounds around the problem, right? They can come close, and a lot of the industry Im- involved in that, but mm-hmm. it's not it's not exactly a solvable problem.
0: Well, going in a, in a slightly different direction. Orthogon. I know it's really important for you, organizationally, right? You've implemented a lot of you have ways of working of, of just the structure of the business itself. Talk about some of the innovations. I don't know if that's a good word to describe them, but talk about that because I know that's really important to you.
1: Yes. So it's actually a, a passion of mine that to avoid hierarchy and to reward everyone that participates when we think of an investment manager we often think well there's a strategy how does the strategy fit that's it and the, and the inside of the firm is somewhat of a black box there'll be some personalities involved one of the things i realized in growing up if you will through finance starting my career and going forward was that criticism can be very very valuable but it's very difficult in a hierarchical Environment. No matter what people think, if you have a CIO, people are careful about what what they say.
0: Mm, it's not as candid as it could be. Right.
1: We talked about whether or not you know a track record. Well, what if the underlying investment manager is constantly losing talent? Then the, does the track record persist mm. forward? Well, talent leaves because it's it's not being remunerated as as well as it could be. And so at Orthogon, we have a very flat hierarchy. I know, in, including you said. This, quote, is the founder. But in fact, it's not a, a one-man operation at all. Many people are, are involved in all sorts of areas, and they have control over those areas. And I just have the, the good or bad fortune to be a, a spokesperson. And so people view my face as the front, but actually, mm. it's, a, it's a partnership throughout. And one, one of the innovations we had was not just rewarding employees with carrying our funds, gr- employees great or small, but also making that carry variable. One of the parts of finance is if you're early to an organization that became successful, that's the best case. You'll Mm -hmm. have an equity stake or something equivalent, and it's great. And unfortunately, the incentive scheme will then work where you might produce less and less, and those under you or more junior to you will end up producing more and more and maybe have to leave because your equity stake is fixed. And here we, as part of our very flat, collegial, no one person dominates environment. We made ours variable where we get together and decide on contributions pretty frequently. That doesn't Mm. just determine our our compensation. A lot of things come out in those discussions that you can think whatever you want about somebody privately or how productive they are or how efficient they are or, or, or not. But when it comes down to suddenly, you know, what people are getting paid, suddenly there's no ball that's being hidden
0: so you actually talk about actual dollars that everyone's made you're in the room altogether
1: basically basically yeah. and that has made lines of communication very very open it's very it's it's excruciatingly difficult actually at the start to do this and to continue there is actually some research that says the human mind is not made to do this i mean it would be a great system for robots to do this but it's because to constantly have people tell you well your contributions weren't that great <laughs> or to hear that is very, very tough. And it's one of the great internal stresses that we have. It just has a lot of benefits to it because if you hadn't heard it before on whether or not what you're working on is going in the right direction or the wrong direction, you'll at least hear it then. And so we've become a, a pretty tight organization for that. So that's one, having first democratizing the profits of the firm inside the firm, and then secondly, having groups in the firm, employees of the firm, Decide collectively, to the extent possible, what we're earning is are, are two things we just don't we just haven't seen in in other managers, and it's been extraordinarily helpful to us. Although it's very very difficult. Remember that wow. if it were the case where I said, okay, well you're the founder, you do this, you, you grab a lot of equity. That's the that's the standard arrangement. Yeah. And if you don't like it, tough. And I had some flexibility at the start. Now, of course. Orthogon is again a very democratic organization. I don't want you to think just because you're interviewing me that that the decisions get made by me that absolutely is just not the case and people at Orthogon would absolutely smile. <laughs> We've massively distributed authority throughout the firm. But at that moment I had a shot and at that moment I decided to take some actions that wouldn't be in my strict private self-interest this way because I thought it would help our investors and the organization as a whole. There are only just a few simple things and just is distributing authority, making sure that Compensation equity stakes are variable. Just two simple ingredients had so much, you know, would have so much chemistry and and resonate throughout the firm.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm your host Julie Siegel. A conversation with Julie Siegel is produced by Deanna Chapman. And always check out institutionalinvestor.com for more.